0: I guess we will. There we go. What happens when a when a Christian sins? And by way of introduction, we're going to look in Romans chapter eight, and then uh, look in the Old Testament in First Samuel, and then we'll go about talking to you about the consequences of sin in the Christian's life. Um, this will be a topical message. Really, I'd like to preach more just out of one verse expositorily. But I really feel that the Lord would have us uh, look into this subject today about what happens when a, a Christian sins. Let's begin in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. And where we're beginning is not so much in... Um, with, this, with a Christian sitting here, but to build a foundation that we, when we're saved, we're uh, saved forever. The eternal security is taught within the Bible. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul brings us in his thinking, uh, in, his, in his building the case, being inspired by the Lord, he brings us into a courtroom setting. And he's going to ask some specific questions that are like would take place in a courtroom, and in doing that, he's going to cement for us the fact that uh, we are secure in Christ. That when we've repented of our sin and trusted in Him, God does a work in our lives that's absolutely secure. And it's fascinating. We could preach a whole message on this, but uh, we're just trying to build the groundwork that. One of the things that doesn't happen when a Christian sins, he doesn't lose his salvation. No. But habitual sin in a person's life is an indication that he's not a Christian. And so uh, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, What shall we say then, what, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered it up for us all. As is written, For thy sake were killed all the day long, were counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things were more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And so we've entered into the courtroom And the first question that was asked in this passage is that the question is, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? And uh I don't necessarily like the uh, pictures of Christ with long hair, and but we do know that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And here we have accusations being made, but the, the answer to the question, who can be against us? When, whenever trial. To be able to bring something to trial, there has to be some kind of an accusation made against us that it brings it to trial. And so the Lord puts out a, a, a great big invitation here. Who can be against us? Who's going to come and lay uh, the court case? Who's going to charge us with, these, with this case? Well, he, the answer is, who can be against us? God's for us. There, there can no cases be laid against the child of God because God is for us. The second thing that's needed in a trial situation is someone to lay the charges, and, and that, that's going to be the lawyer. And, and the question is asked of us in verse 33, who's to lay the charge to God's elect? Who's going to, who's going to take the accusation, he's going to build the case and lay out the charges? And the answer to that is a, is a glorious answer, it says, who, who can lay the charge? And that comes back, it is God that justifieth. And that word, justify, an easy way to remember it, as you've been told in Sunday school, but to, to be made just as though we've never sinned. Though, though there are many things that can be said about us in our past before we're saved, God has made us just as though we never sinned, and so when when the when all the files are brought in and the case and the lawyer is ready to lay the charges, God in heaven says, "Nope, he's been declared justified. Don't you you can't present this. It's hearsay. You can't present this to the court, and he's he's declared us not guilty." In a in a, situ, in a court situation, not only do we have an accusation, and a lawyer to lay the charges, but there is someone that needs to uh, condemn or quit, and that's the judge. And so the question is answered, Ask in verse 34, Who is he that condemneth? Who is the judge in, in this case? Who is he that condemneth? And then it answers the, that with, it is Christ that died. Actually, the, what, the, what we would understand is that uh, we're condemned already, that, that Romans chapter three and verse eighteen, uh, uh, John chapter three verse eighteen says we're condemned already. But what that why the condemnation is not valid is that the Judge came down from His throne and died in our place. Yeah. Who can who can condemn us? It is Christ that died, for He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. In Him, And then every trial needs a jailer who takes the, the guilty person and incarcerates them. And the question is given, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to take us and separate us from society? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is given, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, or depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so, there's no accusation. There's no one that can lay the charge. There's no one that, that's going to judge because the judge came down. And there's not ever going to be a separation between the child of God. But when we come, uh, go with me now over to Second Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we come to a situation in a man's life by the name of David, who was king in Israel. And this is the David who said in Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he ends that psalm by saying, surely I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so David was a man who had God as his shepherd, he was a man that understood that His life was secure; that he's going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But we find we find some shocking things being said in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1. And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servant with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still (coughs) in Jerusalem. And it came to pass in the evening time that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. The woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him and lay with him, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And so here we have a child of God sinning. The question we're broaching today is what happens when a Christian sins? Some would say, uh, Sarah, whatever it will be, will be." That's just life. In fact, uh, uh, about 30 years ago, uh, I knew a man who was pastoring in uh, in Prineville, Oregon, and uh, he uh, he was counseling a woman in the church, had an affair with that woman in the church. Eventually, divorced his wife, quit the ministry, and married this woman who had all, who had divorced her husband. And investing with him about that, he just said, "Well, look what David David sinned, but the Lord blessed him, and he you know he went on with life. And uh, and David did you know he sinned? It went about nine months at least because his child is born." And, David, and Nathan comes to him after even the child is born and, and he tells David that the child is going to die but Nathan says to him, you're the man. You're the one that has sinned. And so this this idea that yeah, there's people in the Bible that sin and they still were used of the Lord and life went on. But I think it's very important to understand the consequences of sin in the child of God's life unless we take it For granted, and 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 it's necessary to understand because we're never truly going to repent and and get serious with God until we understand the devastating effects of sin in our lives, and and we ought to we ought to flee youthful lust. We ought to try to get away from sin as much as we can. We ought to bring our life uh, into discipline by God's grace. So that we might not sin, because there are some very serious consequences when a child of God sins. Eternal security, as we said, shouldn't produce a case of rah, rah, whatever it will be, will be attitude. And so, when a Christian sins, the first thing I want to point out to you is his conscience is going to be defiled. If you go over with, with me to Romans chapter two. Paul says something here in Romans chapter 2 that applies to all mankind, but particularly to to the saved because uh, it would be even increased with the Spirit of God living within a child of God. But in Romans chapter 2, in verse 15, it says, Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, and so God has written his his law into our hearts, that there is a sense and an understanding of right and wrong in a person's life their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And so, with every, every person in this world, he has an understanding of right and wrong, that God has given it to us, an automatic alarm system within our spirit that, that, that sends out alarms for right behavior and wrong behavior. And, and particularly, that's even greater sensitivity in the child of God's life because now he has the spirit of God living within him and has that sensitivity to that. The conscience is no less operative once we're saved. It's, in fact, it's much more operative. And Proverbs tells us, it gives a little picture here, but Proverbs says, The spirit of man is, is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly. And so the spirit of god is like you know like a candle going into a dark house and it back way back there in the corner there's not much light but the the word of god and the spirit of god shines the light upon those areas and it reveals sin to us that that our conscience is, is a very real factor in our lives that god uses to try to bring us to a place of repentance and confession of sin and so the conscience is defiled, and so when, when, when that spirit of God and that candle shines it back there in that dark place, I want to say, no, no, it's not that bad. You know, other people do it. it it'll be okay, and, and, I, and I, want to, I want to suppress that. I, and what I'm doing, as we're using this term, the conscience is defiled, what I'm doing is I am fighting against what God has given to me naturally, supernaturally, that I might be right with Him. That I might not have to go through so much of the hardness and the the heartache of living with sin in my life. But I defile that. I I corrupt that. I put that down. I push it. I want to ignore it. I I want to unplug the alarm system that's going on within my soul. We have many uh, examples in the Bible of people whose one way or the other words it, but whose conscience are bothered. You remember when, when Joseph's brothers there in the book of Genesis sold him into captivity and he went down into Egypt and God used him to preserve life for all the nation of Israel. But there came a point when they had to go down to Egypt, his uh, the other brothers come down into Egypt and were confronted with the person of David uh, or Joseph being there in Egypt. And this is what they said. And they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear, therefore is this distress come upon us. They're, they're saying, listen, we've what we've sown. And, and, and we all felt, you know, after we sold him and he went down the way, we all felt guilty. Their conscience was defiled. David felt guilty when he numbered the children of Israel in his pride, trying to show how great his kingdom was. And afterward, the Bible says, And David's heart smote him. And so we're talking about a term of consciousness, of defiling of our conscience, that his heart smote him after they had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done, and now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity, of thy servant for i have done this very foolishly and we find in the new testament when peter preached on the day of pentecost and now when they said this they were pricked in their hearts and so uh, one way it words it is smote in our heart pricked in our heart but we defile our conscience that we can't uh, go around as life as normal when you sin there's something that takes place within the relationship you have between you and god that's defiled. You you have a guilty conscience. You can't escape that. You you want to. You want to say, "Case sirrah, sirrah, it doesn't matter. But nevertheless, the Spirit of God works in our lives. And one of the things that's going to happen when a Christian sins, he's not going to be at peace in himself. His conscience is going to be defiled. I want to show you this example of this, particularly in in David's life. We, we, we read how that he would sinned with Bathsheba. There's much more to that story than what we read. But I want you to go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And here's where we find Nathan coming and challenging David concerning uh, their sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and it came unto him, and said unto him, there were two men in the city; the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him with his children, and it did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup, and lay in the bosom and was unto him as a daughter. Meat in the Old Testament doesn't mean flesh, but it means food. And it can do, and they, so he wasn't a meat eater as we would consider, but he was eating grain. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take his own flock and his own herd, and dressed for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. And he took a to poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And so he tells this story, but what he's picturing is how David had stolen another man's wife, and he had. He had wives himself. And, and, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord of Israel, I anoint thee king over Israel, and deliver thee out of the hand of Saul. And gave you thy master's house and thy master's wise and their bosom, and gave thee this house of Israel and Judah. and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. But what I want to point we want you to see in this passage is that the Old Testament is very specific that when you steal someone's sheep and, and, and harm comes to that sheep, you're to restore to the one you stole from fourfold. That's that's Bible. But no place in the Bible does it say what David said, surely this guy has to die. There's no place in the Bible where where, uh, theft would require capital punishment. And so what's going on here? I mean, why why is David blowing the gasket? Why is he boiling over? Because... Because for over nine months at least, because his baby's going to be born, for for months and months and months he's lived with a guilty conscience. Sometimes you'll see Christians that are just out of whack. and, And I wonder sometimes if there's unconfessed sin in their life. Look over in Psalms 32. Psalms 32. Here, David writes a psalm after he had been confronted by Nathan. And he says in Psalms 32 and verse 3, when I kept silence, that is in that time period that he had sinned with Bathsheba and went on, don't let anybody know about it. let's keep quiet about this, let's bring Uriah back and we'll kill him, and then it'll look like that this baby's my baby and it wasn't out of wedlock when he kept silence my bones wax old through my roaring all the day long this is talking about defilement of your conscience that my my bones are, just feel like they're old spiritually and there's a roaring going on within me a roaring that I get out of bed mad and I go to bed mad and and I, you know banging doors and kicking dogs i'm i'm uh, uh, there's something wrong with me my conscience is defiled for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. Listen, the, the person who, who's a child of God and is living in unconfessed sin, God's hand is going to be upon him. God's not going to let you just do what you want to do because you're his child. And he says here, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turning into the drought of summer. His life was like, uh, like living in a dry summer Back in uh, back in 1964, no 1984, uh, an Avianca airline jet crashed in Spain. And investigators got the black box and studied what was happening. And on the black box, it recorded a message that was an automatic message in a real shrill voice the computer identified that the warning system was going off, and in English, it kept saying, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up." a warning system going off in the cockpit. And the pilot, evidently thinking that the system was malfunctioning, snapped back at the recording saying, shut up, gringo, and shortly after, They plowed in the side of a mountain, and everybody was killed. God has given us an automatic warning system that I'm not going to allow you to live in sin and unconfessed sin. I want you to be right with me. I want you to confess your sin. And so one of the things that happens is that when we sin against God, we have our conscience is defiled. Paul wrote, and herein do I exercise myself. He, he, he exercised, he, he worked out, he wanted to make sure this is right. We, we exercise myself to have a, always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. That I want to live with a good conscience. I don't want to live with this warning system going on. Over in another building, we have some we have some uh, pull alarms, and I guarantee you, if we went if we're over there eating after services today, and we go pull those alarms, that uh, after about five seconds of that, people are going to be how do you shut that thing off? Go shut that thing off! I can't stand that thing. Well, God's not going to shut off the automatic warning system of our conscience until we get it right, and so when. When a Christian sins, we're asking the question, what happens when a Christian sins? One of the things that happens is that his conscience will be defiled. Secondly, if you'll go with me over to Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 4, you're going to see that that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, the Bible tells us, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. If you'll drop back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, In whom you also trusted, that is, Jesus Christ, after that you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And when we uh, compare Romans 8 and 9, it says if, we, if we're without the Spirit, we're none of His. And so the Bible, we could we could run this out to make it really lengthy, and I don't want to do that. But the fact of the matter is this, is that when we're saved, the Spirit of God who is omnipresent... The Spirit of God comes and lives within us. He's a part of us. He, he's the one that helps energize that conscience. And it's not just like a little bad angel and a good angel sitting on your shoulder, but the very fact that the person of, of God and the Holy Spirit lives within us. And when the Bible says that, that we can grieve Him. Now, now, uh, when my kids were little and, and other kids were little here in the church, and and when when your kids or other people's kids, you know, they messed up, or you know, uh, they were it's muddy out there now. They were out there with their Sunday best on clothes, and, and they were wading in the mud puddle, and their dress was getting all dirty, and they knew they shouldn't be out there. The mama always told them to be that. You know, if it's your kid, you know what I'm doing. I'm laughing if it's my kid, we're going to the woodshed. When I'm talking about the word grieve, it's a, it's a word that's a word that's linked to love. He cares for us. The Spirit of God wants us to have a life and life more abundantly that's promised in the scripture. And so he has a way for us that's a good way, that the way of the Lord is perfect. That, that, that the Lord has blessings for us, but when we live in disobedience, the, then it's just a sad thing for the Spirit of God, that, that it grieves Him. And, and, and there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a split. And he doesn't leave us, but there is a division between us and the Spirit. There's a, there's a conflict. He's, uh, you know, he's been, he's been pushed back in the back room when he ought to have access to all the rooms of my life. And that's, that's, a, that's no more easily identified than your prayer life. When, when we live with unconfessed sin and our conscience is defiled, the last thing I want to do when my conscience is defiled is for me to go talk to God. Because, listen, when you bow in prayer as a child of God and your spirit is not yielded to the spirit of God, there's going to be a wrestling match. And God's not going to quit until he's the dominant one. And so it's reflected. We, 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 we grieve the spirit. The songwriter said this, How long has it been since you talked with the Lord? that could indicate sinfulness in your life. How long has it been till you talked to the Lord and told him your heart's hidden secrets? How long since you prayed? How long since you stayed on your knees till the light shone through? How long has it been since your mind felt at ease? The defiled conscience. How long since your heart knew no burden? Can you call him your friend? How long has it been since you knew that he cared for you? Have you grieved the Spirit of God? Is the Spirit of God someone that you want to just kind of keep a distance from right now? How long since your heart knew no burden? Well, when a Christian sins, his conscience is defiled, and he's going to grieve the Spirit of God And he's going to lose fellowship with God. Look over in uh, 1 John chapter 1, back in the back of your Bible, the epistle of, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. 1 John. Chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, If if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. That God's not going to have fellowship with us. He doesn't leave us. It's a a relationship, and it kind of links to this thing about grieving the spirit of God. If you go with me, hold your, uh, you won't need to hold your place here, but if you go over to 2 Corinthians, it says it in a little different way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6 14, it says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord or relationship hath Christ with Belial, which is Satan? And what part he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For he is a temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and test not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And then he says, And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. When he says he's going to be a father unto us in verse 18, it doesn't mean that's that's salvation, but it's meaning that I can be the father that I want to be to you, that God's not going to bless us in disobedience. But he says, I've got all this stuff that I want to do with you, that I want to experience with you, that I want to fellowship with you. I want to be a part of your life. But when I sin, that fellowship is broken doesn't mean that God has moved. God's going to be where he's always been. But it does mean that I have moved from him because I don't want to be around him. I don't want to pray to him. I I don't, you know, when the invitation is given at the end of the services when I was living in sin, man, I, I was hoping to just sing two verses or three verses and I hit the door as fast as I could go. I don't want to be around that. And when I'm right with God, they had, I was, when I was right with the Lord, I was there when they turned the lights out. Because I wanted to be around God's people. I wanted to experience all of God that I could experience. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord's not going to hear me. I have no fellowship with him. But when in fellowship, we can ask according to his will. And he hears us. And Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And he's in my life, I'm indwelt by the Spirit of God, but that living in me is not present when I'm living in sin. And I want to, I want. listen, life, I, I turned 71 this month, but life is too short not to live in fellowship with God. As being a child of God. you can you can lose some very precious things and in the end of when it's all said and done, what was the most important things? Was it the Ferrari that you was able to buy? Was it was it the jet boat that you you had? What was it was it being able to vacation here or vacation there? No, the most important things in life was my was my relationship and my fellowship with people, but most of all, with my Lord. That I could say, life's been good to me. That I could say, it was a joy to know Christ. And so, it's always a bother, you know, whether it's my wife or my parents when they were alive, or to be out of fellowship with a brother or sister in the church, but to be out of fellowship with God When a Christian sins, his conscience is going to be defiled. He's going to grieve the spirit of God. He'll be out of fellowship with God. And then in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, he's going to reap. Galatians 6 and verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And there's two sides of sowing. We're talking about the negative side, but it says, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the spirit of the spirit leave life everlasting. And so there's a positive and a negative in this, but we're going to reap what we sow. But there's a consequences. It's like a crop being planted. And when you sin, you, you, you've planted a crop. And you can't reverse that. Job said, even as I've seen they that plow iniquity and sow in wickedness reap the same. Proverbs said, therefore shall they eat of their fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. Go back with me again to this account of David in 2 Samuel. When I sin, there's going to be a reaction and a reaping for that sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is told there in verse, I mean chapter 12 and verse 7, David is told, Doubt the man. And Nathan said to David, Thou art a man, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king of Israel, and deliver thee out of the hand of Saul. And it talked about the, uh, uh, we read this portion before, but let's drop down to uh, verse uh, uh, 9. Wherefore thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord, to do evil in his sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and has taken his wife to be thy wife, and has slain him with the sword in the children of Ammon, and then the consequences. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thy house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord Behold, I'll raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I'll take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them to thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou did it secretly. But I'll do this same before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Well, he was still a child of God, but he's going to reap. And he did reap. His son revolted against him. Absalom, one of his favorite sons, tries to overthrow his kingdom. And there came a point in his life when the armies of David were able to catch Absalom and to kill Absalom. And David's waiting for news. He's hoping for the best report. And he's looking out, and here comes a, a, a writer, and he knows he's bringing a message. And when he brings the message, David inquires of him, uh, how is the young man speaking about Absalom? Is Absalom safe? How is the young man Absalom? Is he safe? And Kusai said that I wish that all of your enemies were like, like Absalom and that Absalom has been killed. And David turns and, and climbs the stairs up to a higher room and crying out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son. Absalom, would to God I could have died for thee, but were to God he would have lived for the Lord in the presence of Absalom, he reaped what he sowed. When you go back to further into Genesis, you come to the judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham pleads for his nephew that lives in Sodom, there came a point between Lot, Abraham's nephew, and himself, where their possessions, particularly their flocks, that the herdsmen begin to conflict over where they were grazing their sheep and and, the, and their cattle. And so Abraham tells Lot, you choose. If you go to the east, then I'll go to the west. <coughs> And Abraham really didn't give him what was in front. He, he said, go east or west, to the left or to the right. But Lot looked out on the well-watered plains of Jordan and how they were like Egypt. And he would had a taste of Egypt when he went down to Egypt with his uncle Lot. And so Lot goes and dwells in the plain where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are. And he pitches his tent towards Sodom. And eventually he moves into Sodom. And, and, he's, and he's, he's the Bible tells us in 1 Peter that God vexed his righteous soul daily. So here's a man living in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's even going to, when, when some men try to come and rape, they're thinking the angels are actually uh, physical men, and they kind of come and try to come and rape those uh, angels a lot, even offers his own daughters to these perverted people living in Sodom. And so he's drifted and drifted and drifted and drifted. Don't think that you can get out of God's will and stay th- the same place you've always been. He drifted. And the Spirit and the angels, they come at night, uh, and the men try to get in, and finally God blinds them, and they're sitting, and they're in the house of Lot. It's dark. It's night. And the angel said. Do you have any sons or daughters or sons-in-laws here? We, you need to get them out of here because God is going to judge these people. And so someplace in that nighttime, Lot goes out, and he goes to the, to the, to the houses of his daughters and his sons-in-laws. And we don't, it's plural. I don't know how many he had, at least two. And he goes, and he, he in the middle of the night, he knocks on the door. Gets the attention of his son-in-law. His son-in-law comes to the door. And we don't know how much the talk went on there or or if he went in or stayed at the door. But the message was conveyed to his sons-in-laws. You need to get up and you need to get out of here. We need to pack up right now. Let's get out of here. Because God's going to judge this place. And the Bible says... He seemed as one that mocked. Oh, come on, old man. Go back and go to bed. Go back and get in your bed. This ain't going to happen. No, it's going to happen. God is going to judge this iniquity in this place. No, come on. This is good. This is, you know, this is all right. Go back to bed. And can't you see in your mind's eye? Lot going back to his house to get his wife and his two daughters that still lived with him, and no doubt his feet were dragging, and his soul was sagging, and the realization has been dropped up him like an anvil from the sky. That you're going to reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And a lot of times, you're going to reap it in your children. When a Christian sins, his conscience is going to be defiled. He'll grieve the Holy Spirit. He'll lose his fellowship with God. And he'll reap. And then he's going to be chastised of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 4, the Bible talks about God bringing out the whipping stick those that are his. Why? That he's going to get, get even with them? I'm going to get back at those guys. No. Because he knows if they don't change their way their life is going to be completely destroyed. That's, that's Hebrews 12 and verse 5. It's kind of low there for some of you. And Hebrews 12 and 5 says, And, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth you as with sons. But what son is he of whom the Father chasteneth not? That really happens in a couple of ways. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the divine the center of the soul and spirit. And it's, and it's not unlike many parental disciplines that, that they need to be, f- f- you know, a child needs to first be disciplined by, by admonition. That, you know, th- this is what you're doing, you, you got to stop it. You can't be doing this. I don't want it done. This is wrong. You got to stop it. You don't just automatically go let lower the hammer. If you're a good parent, lower the hammer on a child that uh, just for the first offense. But you tell them, this, you know, this is, this is proper behavior, but this is improper behavior. And God does the same. And maybe even in a message like this today, God is saying, listen, this is you. This is you. Respond to this. This is wrong behavior. Confess it and be cleansed and move on. But when that doesn't work in the physical realm with children and in the spiritual realm, when that doesn't work, God is going to discipline us. And you may be here this morning and say, Well, Pastor, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never been disciplined like, you know, what are you talking about? God's never. Discipline me. Well, if that's the case, then maybe you need to look at your whole card because the Bible says that He chastened those that are His. And if you just go and live in sin and nothing happened, then then you need to ask yourself, Am I really a child of God? And so there are some consequences for sin, and they're not good consequences. There, there are things that can reap havoc in your life. It can shorten your life. It, it can cause grief in your life. The joy, the Bible says uh, in the uh, Old Testament, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And when you're not, when, when you're living out of the will of God, you're not in the joy of God, and you just feel like you're sapped all the time. And, and it begins a life where it's simply... Putting one foot in the front of another, and a lot of times you're, you're just stumbling along uh, the way. And so your conscience is going to be defiled. The Spirit of God is going to be grieved. He who loves you, fellowship with my God, that I am my beloved, and He is mine, and His banner over me is love. You're going to reap what you have sowed, and you're going to be chastened of the Lord. But when a Christian sins, he's invited over and over. He's invited by God to get right, to receive forgiveness, that he stands willing and ready to forgive. David. David talked about his sin and, and how that when he kept silent, his bones waxed. old. we read that. But the next verse is said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. First John, you know, says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right here is is the key. This is where it begins. If. God wants that sweet fellowship. God wants to bless you. But it's in your court. And we should pray to the Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Put that candle that we talked about, that candle, may you shine it into my life. Let me know where I'm at. Let me live, let me live at peace with you. Let me live in, in blessings with you. Let me live in, the, in your will. If the only reason you can go on into tomorrow and still be out of the will of God and living in sin is because of you. God stands willing. If we confess, the word confess means to say what God says about it. When David when David had sinned there and Nathan had come and said, you're the man, then David immediately, when he was confronted, immediately said, I have sinned. And when he talks about it in Psalms 51 and S- Psalms 32, he said, against thee. And thee only have I said. He knew that he had sinned against God. That the primary relationship, listen, the secondary relationships in life will never be right. My relationship with my wife, my relationship with my children, my relationship with you will never be right until I get the primary relationship right, my relationship with the Lord. And so if we confess our sins, he is faithful. Aren't you glad that we have a faithful God? He is faithful and just. How can he be just? How can can it be just for him to forgive my wretched sin because his son died in my place and he paid it all? To forgive us our sin, to send it away, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that that I can be clean, that he cleanses me from all unrighteousness. Remember when Brother Fryman was here, one of the things that Overwhelmed me with that he said, he said uh, that when we when we have dirty dishes or paper plates and stuff, we we only wash that which we intend to use again. And when God cleanses me, my sin, it seemed like that, why would he ever want to use me again when I've sinned and disobeyed him like this? but God cleanses us so he can use us. He couldn't use David in everything he wanted to do. He wouldn't let David build him the temple. And David said, okay, I understand that. But you know what I'm going to do, God? I'm going to get all the material that's necessary, and Solomon won't have to look for any material. it will all be here. And David had a major part in the building of the temple. God wants to cleanse us, and he only cleanses that which he intends to use. Listen, God can use you. He wants to use you. He doesn't want you just living in the same old, same old. God has saved you for a reason. He saved you to use you. Now, as I did last week, I want to get real pointed. Perhaps you're here today and you know you're not saved. The same Spirit of God that convicts you day by day.